for the clarification. Uh, I'm Trustee Dave Wilson, our Chairman Frank Rovato, and our Vice Chair Sunita Ganapati are on vacation. So I will be running the show today. Roll call, David Kwan. Here. Dick Santos. Here. Andrew Gardner. Here. Eshwar Mini. Here. And I, Dave Wilson, am present. I believe, let's see, we don't have anybody, uh, any members joining uh, for just cause under AB 
just for if, if I just interrupt, so um, just for the record, Reed Smith's attorneys, Harvey Lieberman and Nutekchen, have recused ourselves from closed session item 1A. And we did receive word on the ceremonial item uh, that the recipient can't make it to the January meeting, so we will move that to the February meeting. us, I believe, to the consent calendar. Um, is there any item on the consent calendar that any board or staff member would like to pull? And is there any item on the consent calendar that any board or staff member would like to com comment on? Uh, and before we approve, is there any public comment about the consent calendar? Entertain a motion to approve the consent so calendar. So move Santos. <coughs> Second. Second Eshwar. All in favor? Aye. 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 Consent calendar is approved. And now I think we move on to item two. Oh, uh, before we do that, uh, if we could please have a public comment. Uh, on the consent calendar or public no, comment be period? Before the, co before the uh, consent calendar, there is a general public comment section. All right back to that. I thought I did that, but I, maybe I'll have to read the whole thing. At this time, members of the public may comment on items not included on the agenda, provided that the matter is within the subject matter jurisdiction of the board. Members of the public who wish, who wishes to provide <coughs> comment at this time may do so by raising your hand in the Zoom app, or if joining by telephone, pressing star nine on your telephone keypad. When addressing the board, press star six to unmute or mute. Please state your name for the record prior to providing your comments. Speakers will be limited to three minutes. In addition, public comment on items listed on this agenda will be taken at the time <coughs> the item is addressed. At this time, is there any public comment? Okay, and hearing none, we'll move on to Prabhuj. All right, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, good morning, trustees. Happy New Year. Uh, I do have some performance estimates from Laura as of a couple of days ago. Uh, the police and fire plan fiscal year to date was up 3.96% and the healthcare trust was up 3.88%. Um, with that, uh, I just I want to introduce, uh, we do have a special guest today uh, and it's a bit unfortunate that a couple of our trustees are missing but it's, it's hard to time these things with everyone's busy uh, schedules. Uh, but I would like to invite uh, Professor Myron Scholes up to uh, to speak to the board and he will be making a presentation um, on on risk and actually on the markets in general and I'm going to read out his uh, please sir uh, I'm going to read out his bio it's a it's a really long bio so I'm just going to keep it short and so so that you can hear him speak and not me uh, Professor Scholz is the Frank E. Buck Professor of Finance uh, Emeritus at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1997 for his new method of determining the value of derivatives. And I'm sure everyone here uh, knows uh, the Black-Scholz op option pricing model. Uh, there are very few, uh, of course the Nobel Prize in Economics is, is awarded every year, uh, but just a handful of them have relevance to what we do, and you know, obviously Markowitz, Sharp, Pharma, uh, and 
and Professor Scholz have had a huge impact on the way we manage portfolios. It's extremely relevant, uh, especially uh, Professor Scholz, his expertise is also, you know, on tail risk hedging, he'll talk about that, and risk management. And you've often heard uh, former Chair Lanza speak about why we can take a lot of risk. And, and Professor Scholz will talk about uh, the downside risks. And, you know, it does have an impact on our sponsor. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, Professor Scholz was also a managing director at Solomon Brothers. And uh, he was previously a professor of finance at uh, MIT Sloan School of Management and at the University of Chicago. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to him. He does have a presentation. Uh, we have a hard copy. Uh, we couldn't post it in time, so we have a hard copy of the presentation. If you don't have a hard copy, I think there are copies up front. Uh, but I believe that it, it will be shared on screen as well. And we will be driving it. If you want, let us know. Left hand is move forward, right hand is back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And, and, and Professor Scholz has been very gracious with his time. We've, we've known each other for a few years now. Uh, he's always willing to have coffee with me and to talk about the markets. So thank you for your generosity. Over to you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, obviously, I entertain questions at any time. It's supposed to be interactive, so we're supposed to be trying to learn things together, and so sometimes the questions really help me learn as well, so I appreciate that. Thank you for hosting me today, and uh, um, I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of uh, risk management, and uh, we can move forward to the next slide, and basically, <coughs> as Harvey said, when I started off in the profession, I was lucky enough to be within the foundations of the modern era of finance and the ideas that we had talked about early on were really a first approach to having a, a, a micro-positive view of how economics and how we should apply it to finance. And what I mean by that is that it has a theory, and the theory is just as a, a model of how investment management should occur and be work, and from that we would have then applications of the theory. And I've been lucky in my career to start off in the late 60s in the profession and see its evolution over these many years, over 50-some uh, years now, and see how many of these ideas actually have been adopted and used in the profession. For example, if you have a micro-positive view, that means you have a theory, and that helps inform decision-making in both corporate finance and investment. And this information is informing is different from a macro view. The macro view is not really just thinking about how to make better business decisions, but we are really in the profession of making better investment decisions or better corporate financing or corporate investment decisions. And so I just list here uh, the profession, which is Markowitz and portfolio theory, which showed for the first time the components of why a portfolio creates diversification. And then Bill Sharp followed on from that, talking about differential risk. And you are all using in your performance measurements things like the Sharp ratio or information ratio or beta or alphas and all this new nomenclature that was not even in the profession at all in the 70s that come into place in the um, 80s and 90s, et cetera. 
And then Fama and Sanderson talked about the idea of efficient markets, the idea of thinking about market prices are so crucial to everything. And if you're going to think that you have a better view of the future than the market, why do you have a better view of the future than the market? The market is an anchor. The market price is an anchor that allows you to make uh, better uh, decisions. If you have no market prices, it's very hard to know how to trade or what to do. If you have a market price, at least you can use that to free ride and <coughs> think about what you should do. So if there's no information, buying a diversified portfolio would be fine. You know, if you have information, you can do better, then it's better to use the information. But at least you have the anchor of the market prices. And then Black and Scholes and Bob Merton, uh, who were, as you said, as Harvey said, we were awarded the Nobel Prize in economics for thinking about option prices. And option prices are insurance, and they tell us about how to price risk. And pricing risk is different from pricing returns or thinking about what risk premium should be. It prices risk. And I'm going to talk a lot about that today because I'm excited and I've been doing the last numbers of years about marrying together option theory and option pricing theory with the other things we learn in portfolio theory. And the reason insurance pricing or the idea of thinking of risk is so important, it helps us inform how to make better investment decisions. And that's what's exciting to me again. How do we make better investment decisions? And Merton and Samuelson talked about time using historical data and normal distributions. But the interesting thing is that what we have to think about is <coughs> investments, is really thinking about how do we think about making money in investing. And the first way is I have here four components of making <coughs> money. One component <coughs> is uh, beta, as you've learned about which is you earn risk premiums by holding inventory. So you expect to make returns by holding equities. You make returns by holding components of equities. And it's part of a, a strategic allocation. How do we allocate money strategically to various alternatives? The second way in which we think about making money is alpha or forecasting the future. Either we take short-term views about the markets and where they should go, or we have themes. And the themes require patience. And these patience means they'll evolve over time. So the more you need themes or patience, the more you're going to take tracking error from your benchmark. Sometimes your view could be correct, such as that we're going to have decarbonization is going to be a big theme, or aging of populations is going to be a big theme, or insourcing is going to be a big theme. But these themes take time, or AI is a theme. And it takes time for these themes to evolve. In the meantime, there could be great deviations from your benchmark if you're investing in these themes. And so those are important questions to think about is how much patience you have and how you can allocate money over time. But this is all part of the strategic <coughs> allocation decision. And it's forecasting of really the mean return, forecasting of what we're going to earn over time. That's what the alpha decision is. And how do we deviate from BART's benchmark? Sometimes it's tactical tilts, tilting away from bonds to equities or equities to bonds, given our personal views. And the third way in which you make money, which I think is one of the most important ways of making money in everything in life, is, is really what I call omega, which is the constraints that everyone has. And if people have constraints, then that means they're willing to pay others to take risks. 
they constrain themselves to stay close to the benchmark. They stay close to, they don't deviate from the benchmark. The most constrained investment of all is the completely passive investment. If you buy an index fund, it's constrained. You don't deviate at all from the benchmark. And so that's a constraint. So if you have views, you don't deviate from the views. And many are constrained to stay close to what their objective is, even though they know they could reduce risk by moving from their benchmark to less risky assets such as bonds, they stay at their benchmark. So Omega is really thinking about how you mitigate the constraints of others. If you have, don't have constraints and others have constraints, they're willing to pay you to take risk. And that's very important. The reason I called it Omega is as restrictions build up in the market, as frictions build up, the constraints build up, then we end up in a situation where the flow through is less. So in Ohm's law, as you get resistance, the more resistance you get, the less you get done and the more skewness you get in distributions. And so this is very important to try to understand the cost of constraints and how to mitigate them. And the third way is really the fourth way, which I'm gonna talk about more today in combination with the, uh, the C, is beta risk management. People talk about risk management, but they think about it as holding inventory or risk, the market risk versus bond risk, but they don't think about smoothing your ride forward. In life, you wanna have a smooth and boring ride. You don't wanna have a ride that bounces all over the place and a lot of bouncy risk. Smoothness is the key. So beta risk management is creating a smooth ride, a boring ride to reduce your volatility and reduce the drag. Excess volatility creates drag on your uh, life experience and on performance. And so basically I've been involved in trying to think about how the constraints of C and D, this idea of creating a smooth ride will create better opportunities to create uh, risk events that make, that can make us have an opportunity to have a better return experience on portfolios. So current risk management really thinks about reserves. How much reserve should we have? How much should we have in bonds? How much we should have in equities? That's a reserve. Should we have 100% equities or partially in bonds or all in bonds? So that's a reserve. But the more reserve you have, you have to think about when do you use it? When do you use this cushion? When I was uh, my first wife, and that used to have pillows all on the couch. But I could never sit on the couch. I said, why can we have pillows on the couch? That's a cushion. <laughs> I said, I can never sit on the couch. <laughs> so when do I use the cushions? You know, that's part of life, is when do you use the reserves you set up to have a better experience? That's really important. And basically, we talk about diversification. We should diversify our risk. We shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket. But what if we're carrying basket on this arm, basket on this arm, basket? We have other baskets on the arm and we trip on the stairs and all the eggs fall, the baskets all fall. And so all the eggs break. At times, basically diversification is lost. We have great shocks that occur. We have that all assets tend to move together, down or up together. So we don't have diversification. Diversification gets lost. So the idea is that there's, uh, it's diversification is free until you really need it. When you need it, it's not there. You know, you can diversify everything, but it's really the question is how to think about risk of diversification. Yes, on average, but it, in life, the key thing is the middle of the distribution doesn't mean anything. All the little ups and downs. So you get free diversification, that doesn't mean very much. Where really you need diversification is the extreme events, extreme <coughs> losses or extreme gains. Those are the most important times. 
in which you need the diversification, and that tends to be loss. And then insurance. You talk about buying insurance, okay, that you buy put options on a portfolio, you buy protection to the downside. But the question is, what happens when it goes down? What happens when it goes up? The insurance is no longer there. If you buy insurance when the asset is 100 and it's now 90, it's now 85, there's not much, uh, it's now 120, 130, there's not much insurance available. You have to repurchase the insurance and know how to be dynamic. So life is dynamic. When to use the reserves, when to think about diversification, how that's dynamic, when to think about the idea of insurance and how, how to be dynamic. So we have to move from the static one period model to really thinking about the idea of how to use risk management. Risks are changing. And the interesting thing is if risks are changing all the time, how to use them, risks are changing in a most efficient way. So risk management is not just risk ma measurement. It's really thinking about how to think about the dynamics of risk and how risks are changing. And risk managers, investment managers spend too much time looking through the rear view mirror and not looking at how the road ahead on risk are changing. You have to think about not driving your car, only looking through the rear view mirror. In finance, we look too much looking backwards. We look through the rear view mirror. We have to think about how we look at the road ahead and how we get information about the risk of the road ahead. So if you look at the uh, next slide that we have, this is really the most important in thinking about risk and, and skewness of distributions and, tail and risk changing over time. In life and in risk, we only have one run of time. We only have one run of experience in your portfolio. One run of time is this, okay? And the law of large numbers does not apply. We think about repeating the game, repeating all the time. But we don't have that luxury. Risks are always changing, so we move only moving forward. We don't have a repeated game. We can take samples all the time. And so we think about the importance in a liability setting where you have to have payouts for your, invest your investors or your pensioners that basically risks are so crucial. And what happens if you end up in a situation such as the diagram below where you only think about averages, you only think about means. So your, your friend who can't swim says, what is the what can I cross the river? You say, don't worry about crossing the river. You know, the, on average, this river is only two feet deep. And your friend is smarter than that. He says, well, you know, what, what is it that uh, risk of the river? He says, well, you know, the standard deviation is only one foot. Your friend says, no, no, no. So what's the depth of the river right here? So that's the risk we're interested in. When you're, it's the risk of what is the risk now? And the point is, are really distributions normal, and we can think about it one foot or two feet river, and ha then having it be that we can think about normal variances? No, the whole key is trying to think about what is the risk now? What, what is the risk now? What is the tail losses now that could occur? And, and we could take huge losses, even though after you've experienced this 12-foot depth and the, your friend drowns and you save that person indirectly, then the average might go up a little bit, but that's still meaningless. What is it? And when we look about risk, we think about are you partially along the way? Take decarbonization. We talk about the idea of global warming. And we say we have 2030, we have 2050, okay? We're gonna take policies that over 2030, 2050 are gonna mitigate against the tail losses that we could occur. 
because of global warming. But what if we're on the slippery slope? What if we're already drowning now and we're gonna end up down at the bottom? The cost of getting out of that is gonna be so large. That's the problem. It's not the average that we should concentrate on. It's the tail risk or the loss risk. And risk really, from the above compound return experience, risk is not just experiences drawdown on the downside. It's the risk of missing the opportunities on the upside. So risk is asymmetry. It's the risk of the downside, but it's the risk of missing out on the opportunities of the upside. In life, you have to, we all have to worry about how we have a compound experience, how we have growth. What is the growth? And the growth is the average. Yes, we have the better the average, the better the risk premium, the better the reward, the better our experience is gonna be. But it's also mitigated by the expense of the variance of returns, the more volatility we have, the more drag we're gonna have. Because the compound return is always less than the average return <coughs> by drag. You know, the more, if you think about driving home, today I came in from, uh, from um, my home and near Stanford University and the road was clear, so it was a smooth experience, okay? And I had, uh, John was with me, so you can go in even the, in the high speed lane, so it's very smooth ride. So that was a wonderful, no <coughs> volatility, right? But so I got here early and I was able to go to Starbucks. <laughs> so we didn't experience a, t a tail risk of having a car accident, which has slowed the ride down. So when you're driving, the idea is thinking about having a smooth ride, reducing the volatility. The more volatility, the more drawdown you have, the more that affects your growth of your portfolio. And it's amazing in San Jose's pension fund portfolio, since you have payouts that are occurring on the portfolio. If you have to liquidate some of the portfolio to make payments, okay, when risks cause a drawdown, then your compound experience is horrible because if you're in the drowning phase and you have to liquidate, you can't recover. You can't get out, you know? So basically, if you can reduce your tail risk and you can participate in tail gains, you can have a better experience. So skewness is the other dimension. In life, we wanna have life, all our life in, in investments change we have more upside potential than downside and how can we manage our portfolio to think about the skewness of return in addition so those are just very important uh, components of, of the return so if you look at the actual data every period matters every period matters not we have a long run we can plan for long run every period and how we manage money and how we think about our experiences are very important in the idea, we use the sharp ratio as a measure of reward. It's the amount of reward in excess of the risk-free rate to the volatility. If you look at annual data, the sharp ratio is 25, 0.25, which means there's 25 units of reward for 100 units of risk. So volatility is everything. Downside risk is everything. But if you look over shorter periods of time, you one month, Three months, for example, it's 12 and a half units of reward for 100 units of risk. And if you look over one month sharp ratio, it's seven units of reward for uh, 100, one, uh, 100 units of risk. So basically, the interesting thing is in the short run, risk is everything. When you're talking at the dinner table, you're talking about risk. You're not talking about what is the long run average. You know, what's the risk that we have when you're driving your car? What's the risk of the road ahead? You know, it's not on average what I'm gonna do. So when you think about it, it's not the risk of the road ahead uh, 15 miles from now, it's the risk of the road ahead one mile from now or half a mile from 
Those are the important things. So passive or active risk management has risk drag. When you look at the compound return experience of portfolios, it's always less than the average because of this volatility or skewness effect that affects returns. Because most passive benchmarks and also even active portfolios are not risk managed and come from the sequence of short-term returns is really what creates the compound experience. Every period matters. We don't want to drown next period. We want to have a compound experience that's <coughs> important. And the interesting thing, as we show, is that if you can create any positive skewness to your life or your portfolio, any positive skewness, that means save your downside a little bit and participate in the upside. That little bit of having a better experience on the downside and participating in the upside, a little bit of nonlinearity will co uh, compound dramatically over time. So compounding is patient. In one period, you're not going to see much difference. But over multiple periods, compounding has a huge effect. Einstein was right. He says the most important, one of eighth wonder of the universe is compounding. And compounding is really true. Compound return is important. But we don't talk about compound returns. We talk about average returns. We measure our performance relative to a benchmark. We measure our performance every period of time relative to some criteria. But how does it compound over time? It, you might be, over in the short run, you can't distinguish between this little bit of nonlinearity, but the nonlinearity builds up. We look at experiences, look back in life, you see everything looks linear, looks as though it's smooth, but it's really nonlinear. It's compounding in how we create a compound experience over time. Have um, Subram, my assistant, has a young son, and I watch him. He has, has every year a little bit of compound. The nonlinearity is amazing to see how a two-year-old goes to a three-year-old, go to a four- or five-year-old. The compounding <laughs> is just unbelievable. Even though everything looks smooth and linear, the learning is just unbelievable. So we have to refocus our attention to compound returns. And so if you look at it, basically, Volatility is really a poor measure of risk, okay? Drawdown is a better measure of risk. Well, we use volatility, but that assumes the distributions are unchanging. Risks are the same. That's not true. Risks are changing all the time. Risks of the road ahead are not the same. Looking at the rear view mirror might tell us something about the risk of the road ahead, but it's much better to look at the risk of the road ahead, not just to look at the risk by looking at the rear view mirror. So why? Because risks are changing. Every time, risk is always changing. And we know from the macro policies, we know from, uh, from the idea of demographics, we know from scarcity, we know from technology, risks are always changing. And so that's why you're, you have uh, volatility really is not as important as drawdown is a better measure of risk to the downside. And it's really, it should be thinking about limiting our bad risks. That's what we should be thinking about. But it's also participating in gains, the right tail experience. Good risk. Good risk is the upside. Bad risk is the downside. Volatility has both components to it. I can have a lot of volatility, but if I told you there's huge volatility, so I don't want it. But I tell you, most of it is upside volatility. Now, then you want it, right? But if I tell you you have huge volatility and it's mostly downside, what do you tell me? I don't want it. I want upside volatility. I want upside experience. So volatility could be high, but it's only upside. Volatility be high, it's only downside, or mostly weighted to that. So that's very important. And the interesting thing is that the option market, 
the option market is the signals of the crowdsourced information about the risk <coughs> of the road ahead. When I drive now, I use Google Maps or I use Waze. It tells me about what the risk of the road ahead. That's all cross-sectional signals out there, all cross-sectional signals. I don't, I look at the rear view mirror to worry about cars gonna hit me from behind, but when I think about traffic and I think about how do I get a better experience, it's the cross-sectional signals that exist about the risk of the road ahead. Professor, yeah. I believe uh, Trustee Minnan has a question. Go ahead, sir. If you don't mind. Oh, no, fine, man. So the, the one other thing, what you say, you know, I, I appreciate, um, you know, reacting to bad events, you know, the deep drawdowns, you know, those kinds of things. The one additional element um, which I've observed is uh, human behavior, right? Meaning that when these deep drawdowns happen, people often make the wrong judgment, the wrong decision. Um, and as well, is any academic uh, work kind of combining that behavioral aspects of how investors behave to these events, which actually makes it even worse, actually reinforces your point, I mean. Right, no, that's true, and that's the skewness point. What you're really saying is something very important because what happens at times of shock when someone's drowning, okay? Think about life and, and experience. Everything is volatility times time. Then when things are quiet, time of risk evolves very slowly. But when you have a shock occurring, like a liquidity shock, as you're referring to, things are bad, then people have to react very quickly, and they don't have enough information to react quickly. So the idea is if you have a reserve at that time, and the opportunity set becomes very rich, because in your world, people are behaving in maybe seemingly irrational ways, because they need to reduce their risk, okay, then that creates huge skewness. So if you have the reserve, you have the cushion at that time, then I can sit on the couch, okay, at that time, and basically you can make a better return experience. So part of your planning, as you're saying, is to really think about the dynamics and how that would affect your decision making. So do you give up, you buy some insurance, a little bit of insurance for the downside, which pays off huge, and you have the opportunity set getting very rich, and the skewness is very large. From the previous slide, skewness is very important. If you can see when the opportunity set is gigantic, if you don't have any money, you can't participate in the opportunity set. Because, but if you have reserves, you can. So the idea of thinking about it from the point of view of your managers, you invest in hedge funds or you invest in private equity. They're holding assets, right? But the main thing you're paying them for is when the opportunity set gets very large to redeploy capital. And so in your own business, if you think skewness effects are very important, then if you protect your downside, you have to then think about how do you buy more inventory. When everyone is paying you to take risk, they're constrained to reduce their risk, you wanna be able to step in. And so that's the dynamics when you think the opportunity set is changing, as you're saying. So I, I think the option market prices that risk. So we can go to the next slide, which I, yeah, so this is your slide, you know, which is basically the idea. You, you sold before the boom, okay, because you had to reduce your risk, or you bought before the crash, you know, because you think the opportunities are so large. So that's the same problem that we have is thinking about how risk management changes. So absolute returns are crucial in the way we're thinking about it and how to manage money and not relative returns. We measure ourselves relative to benchmarks. Everything is relative measured to others. 
But you can, but it's not the average is not important. It's really absolutely how we're doing and absolutely how our returns are doing over time. And uh, we're not in a certainty world, but we're actually in an uncertain world, which is important. And constraints are very important. As you just mentioned, you know, that most investors are short a put option, as I call it, on their investment. So what they're doing is they like to be invested as long as there's good times and the road is and it's not raining, you know, you don't need to carry the umbrella. Everyone's very happy, you know, so you don't carry the umbrella. But if it looks like it's gonna rain and you go out and it doesn't rain, oh, you're very happy, okay? But people are taking it. But what if it does rain and you don't carry the umbrella? Then you get soaked, okay? And that's really the real problem about risk is everyone doesn't like to carry the umbrella. Everyone likes to be short the option, short the put. They're short the protection. And so if you're short the protection, you're short the umbrella, you're not carrying it, then when shocks occur, huge skewness occurs, and then who supplies liquidity to the markets? Then if you have good risk management and patience over time, you can supply liquidity at that time and make a very good rate of return. So those who are not benchmark tracking or forced to be at the benchmark have the opportunity to be dynamic and be patient in your investments, and this uh, generates a huge role for options because in investments, we have to think about time, series data, and that's giving us information. We have to also think about the idea of cross-sectional signals, how we can gain information from the markets telling us what the risks of the road ahead are, and that's from the option market. Here I talk about, show you just an illustration of a point you rose, you, you brought up, that at times of shock, <coughs> as we had in, in 2008, which is a huge crisis that occurred at that time, we see that from the option markets, the expected tail losses that the option markets were seeing in the blue line shot up dramatically and, that, and then over time dissipated after we had the ending of the crisis. But it took a long time for those shocks to dissipate. If we looked at the expected tail gains, expected tail loss as shown from the option market, the tail gain is the 10% of the best outcomes as the option market is predicting. And the, and the uh, tail losses are the expected 10% of the worst cases. So the more upside to downside you have, the better your experience. And here you see at the time of the 08 crisis that the downside, the market was saying downside risks were very great. This is just another application of exactly what you were saying previously. People were forced to liquidate. They're forced to get out of the portfolios. You can't tell your family, I'm in the equity market and the market is tanking, <laughs> basically, you say, oh, don't worry about it, we got, we're there for 25 years, it'll all come back. Yeah, it'll all come back, but you could be broke, you could be drowning by the time it comes back. So you're forced to liquidate, and that's a much different experience than what is going on. So if you look at the next slide, we say diversification. And we know that from the option market tells us that really, that sometimes the, uh, the Volatility, the risks are changing dramatically in the market. And we can look at the market that shows that. I'll show you that in a moment. Correlations among stocks and bonds are always changing. They're not constant, they're changing all the time. And really, we have to think about risk of the downside is important. And efficient market prices, there are so many variables to look at. When you think about a stock, you think about looking at the cash flows in a stock, you think about the discount rates in a stock, you think about how to think about uh, what the firm is gonna do in its policies. These are very tough to think about, how to think about risk and how to value the stock. But when you think about options, it's only risk of insurance is when the markets 
uh, when the risk of downside is increasing, the price of insurance is going up. The price of put options goes up. When the price of the upside is good, you know, the price of call options go up because it gives you the opportunity to participate. That's one of the beauties of options. It's, it's only risk, and people price risk much easier than they price actually price uh, the uh, expected returns on stock and assets, and that's important. If you look at the next slide, just an illustration, you see there that the volatility of the market is not constant. Even though people measure it on average from the past data, it's changing all the time. And there, you see even uh, recently in 2020, we had a huge increase in risk around COVID when the, when the economy was shut down. And then we also see implied correlations change dramatically as the option market looks at. So today, you have the market tends to be more of a market of stocks and not a stock market because there's very low correlation among asset prices. There's the seven top stocks that we know, which are tend to be driving things, but a lot of the other parts are dispersion is quite kind of large. And if you ask yourself about forecasting risk, and what we show in these graphs, I'm not gonna spend that much time on them, but basically, you can use historical data to estimate volatility, or you can use the information in the option market to forecast volatility. And what this shows, if you want to forecast volatility of the road ahead, use the signals. Don't use historical data. If you want a 30-day historical data volatility or 60-day historical volatility does not do as good. In fact, you can ignore it relative to what is the risk of the option market in forecasting the risk of the road ahead. So the option market is a much better forecaster. It, uh, using historical data doesn't add any value. It's using uh, the risk of what the market is saying. It's very efficient in forecasting risk. And if you look at the next slide, these are on individual stocks. And it's fascinating, over 2000 and to 2022, if you use the risk implied by the implied volatility, what the market is saying the risk is, and the coefficient is 0.94 on individual stocks, a coefficient of one means they're using it as a purpose forecast. But if you use historical and implied together, the historical has no value. It's only 0.04. And the same thing is true if you use 60-day volatility, 60-day historical volatility versus 60-day forward volatility. Using forward volatility is a much better predictor. I'm saying that, in fact, you don't need to use historical volatility at all. So why not? If you think about driving your car, would you like to know about the cross-sectional signals about the risk of the road ahead? Or just use your rear view mirror? You know, on average, sure, it's gonna be fine, but you're gonna have a crash, okay? It's not gonna tell you the information. So you, ha you have to think about incorporating historical risk moving forward. And if we think about risk, we think about 60-40 portfolios. The idea of a 60-40 portfolio. A 60-40 portfolio is really the idea of a risk-managed portfolio. It's creating a cushion. The 40% is a cushion. It costs you, if you invest 40% in bonds, 40% of bonds means that in excess returns, stocks have about a 5% expected return over bonds. Then basically that means 40% of 5% is 2%. That's exactly what the cost of buying a 30% down protection is, which is what the extreme losses are on a 60-40 strategy. I was shocked actually to see how close it was buying put protection and rolling put protection gave you about the same experience on the downside and the same cost as buying a 60-40 portfolio. So buying put protection or buying protection 
Insurance is a risk management strategy. All risk, all risk management strategies are forms of insurance and bond protection. And if you look at the next slide, we think that cost of protection is high. Cost of protection is high from some of these data. So naive strategies, just buy protection, are expensive. Can you look at the risk of the option market and have more dynamic strategies? The answer is yes. You do much better by creating uh, convexity in your returns by using the information about the risk of the road ahead. And here, the last slide before I talk about the forecast for the future is that if you look at compounding over time, I have here the idea of having a 70-30 static portfolio which people use as their benchmark, 70% in equities, 30% in bonds, passively, a balanced strategy versus a hedge solution where you create an ability to reduce your risk if the market risks are telling you the risk of the road ahead is, is high and increasing your risk if you tell you the risk of the road is low. And you see there, one-year returns, not, you're not going to see much difference in returns. Yes, a little bit different in returns. These are distributions of outcomes. But then if you look at three years, that's a compounding effect. You have, if you go one time on the highway home, then it's much different from going multiple times and letting be seeing how your experience compounds over time by using signals correctly to manage your risk. And over time, the distributions move as convexity occurs, move much to the right. So basically, those are very important themes. Important themes I want to talk, talk about today is risk or changing. How do we incorporate risk into investment management and changing risk to make a better decision? How do we think about tail risk, not just volatility? How do we think about improving our experience by improving our skewness of our returns and adding to returns and our compound returns by managing risk and managing skewness, knowing when the liquidity costs are highest and when to add to returns? That's how we can really improve returns. It's very hard to add returns by trying to forecast means only. It's really thinking about risk. Risks are easier to forecast than returns, in which you have to think about how we manage risk to get better experiences over time. So that is really the message that I wanted to lay out today for you, is risk management is not just risk measurement. Risk management is really not just measuring risk under standard statistics. It's really thinking about how we can add to returns by managing risk dynamically and managing the portfolio to have a better experience. And buying protection and thinking about when to use our protections, when to use the cushions, when to use our experiences to have a better experience moving forward. So before I talk about the themes that are road ahead, is there any questions on this component of the Yes. Thank you. Uh, we're in charge of managing a defined benefit pension plan. In that context, what constraints are we facing that prevent us from being able to maximize return and reduce risk on the downside that other investors are not facing? I think that issue is that you have pension beneficiaries and you have to have expenditures to meet their requirements and their needs. And so basically that's a constraint that you have because even if you thought the portfolio, you have to decide what types of risk management policies to entertain or so that you can meet those obligations. And the cost of having 
the drawdown at the same time that you need to have expenditures from the portfolio <coughs> are usually will affect the ability of the portfolio to sustain itself over time. If you have to withdraw money at the worst time <laughs> to meet your expenditure needs of the fund, then you have your fund's life will be shortened. And we want to extend the life of the fund by having a compound return experience and making sure that we have the protection of the downside. So when we have to withdraw money, you know, we're not at that time in a ca case which we lose the ability to, to get the convexity. Because if you have to pay money out at the wrong time, you'll never get that return back. It'll just have a huge drag on the performance of the fund. So a defined benefit plan really has to worry about the expenditures it needs to make and has to manage the risk of drawdown much more than someone who has no downside expenditures. But in life, everyone has to worry about the umbrella. You know, you have to think about, well, should we carry the umbrella and why? We don't want to drown and why don't you want to get wet, you know? Those are the very important things. And the constraints that you have and how to mitigate those constraints is to do a better risk management, to know when to carry the umbrella and when not to. In other words, when it's sunny today in San Jose, I'm not going to carry the umbrella, right? I can be more aggressive. But if I get signals <coughs> as when it's going to be raining or possibly be a rain, then you want to be more risk averse. You don't want to be think of just a static policy. That's what you have to do as a dynamic. You can't have a static policy is what I'm saying. It has to be a dynamic risk management policy. The same way as everything we do in life is a dynamic policy. Other questions? Yes. Uh, first, thank you very much for the presentation. It's, it's, uh, it was very interesting. Um, I guess from our point of view, our portfolio is kind of uh, somewhat static maybe. It's a little bit dynamic on the edge. And you know, you mentioned the fact of the 60-40 portfolio, we may have more of a 70-30 portfolio. And then I guess the big free lunch we have is the opportunity to rebalance to the mix, you know, uh, Correct. If, if and when there's volatility to the marketplace. Correct. Um, I'm assuming that that's probably not enough convexity from your point of view, and you think that a portfolio such as ours should have more convexity. Uh, and I was wondering how would you propose to add more convexity to an institutional portfolio such as ours? Well, the question is, see, constraints are based on trust, okay? And when you have, see, John Jung's son, you know, who's now six, but I watched, when you have a, a young child, you constrain them because you don't trust them. You constrain them to stay very, you don't allow them to have the freedom. I have very old daughters who I love dramatically, but now I have to trust them, so I don't constrain them at all, okay? So in life, the idea, trust and constraints are the other side of the coin. And so if you have an investment portfolio and you have a management team, then the question is, the management team is worried that you're not trusting them, and then the board is worrying that I don't trust the manager. So as a result of that, you create constraints. And the idea of if you have, and everyone, and when my kids were growing up, they said, Dad, you know, why are you constraining me to be home at 10 o'clock? You know, I'm a good person. I come, I'm being caught to 12 o'clock. I'm fine. You know, don't constrain me. Trust, trust me. I'll be, no, come home at 10. You know. So basically, that's the problem is 
that we have constraints, you're going to give up on the convexity. Constraints have a cost, okay? Because why? If you trust your managers, I'm not being negative about that, <laughs> we wouldn't see you. But if you trust your managers to reduce risk dramatically, if they believe that their signals about how things are done are such they should reduce risk because they think they, uh, it's going to rain. So they kind of start carrying the umbrella, you know, and they want to redeploy. Because you could have, if you deviate, in the short run, you might end up having no rain. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't rain, it's costly to carry the umbrella, right? You prefer not to have carried the umbrella. So that's the problem in investment management. That's the problem with delegated investment management, is there's constraints that exist everywhere. So the idea is in managing your money dynamically and thinking about risk more so, you have to allow for more tracking error and the benchmarks are wrong because the benchmarks are not risk managed. If you go to school, just think about your kids. You say, oh, how do they do? My kid got an A. Oh, great, that must be a phenomenal experience. Yeah, but every kid got an A in the class. <laughs> Stafford, now every, everyone gets a grade of A. You know, no one, I've never seen so many A's <laughs> that are there. But so relative performance is silly, but absolutely, are they learning anything? Are we creating this compound return experience? You know, at Stanford Business School where I taught, we used to teach rigorous things. Now that rigor has gone way down because we don't want any of the students to get a bad grade and fail the course, we reduce the rigor. So on average, everyone gets a better experience, but relative to the benchmark, but the benchmark is lousy. Okay, the benchmark is not risk managed. We have to think about our life as a risk management. So the question is, how do we get more trust? How do we get the idea of trusting so we deviate more? And that's really what the constraints are. And the board has an important problem because how do you get enough information to create this trust which allows you to? And I'm not saying it's an easy job, okay? Because basically, how do, you, how do you build trust in life and how do you build trust in everything? We don't trust anyone anymore for anything we do, unfortunately. And so if you don't trust and you don't deviate from your views of life, we have now a constrained society. There's one group that believes one thing, they don't allow for any deviation. Another group that believes another thing, they don't allow for any deviation. So how do we create a trust that allows us to deviate and take different and understand different risks are really the important component. And I think we have to realize that the cost of, of constraint is not zero. You know, not, not carrying the umbrella or not thinking about how to do things has a cost. And that has to be brought into your thinking. So yes, saying to the benchmark is satisfying. It's a relative story, but it's not the absolute story. Can we do better by convexity? Can we do better by taking patients? Can we do better by going up? Can we extend the life of our portfolio? Can we make the experience for our pension beneficiaries better by deviating? And how do we build trust to allow us to deviate is a crucial component. So, Myron, uh, we have a unique situation here, right? I mean, in San Jose, and I'm going to explain that. So, in general, public pension plans are underfunded all over the country. It's San Jose, it's California, it's nationally. It's a big issue for the country, right? And so in order to bridge that gap, obviously we have to take a lot of risk, uh, meaning we have to invest in growth assets and equity uh, and, so, and so on. But in addition to all the other risks that you spoke about, we have a unique situation in that our sponsor, we have a very mature pension plan. So it affects our sponsored finances. So we have to be very cognizant of the impact it has on the city of San Jose and, and its funding every year. So we're really constrained in multiple ways, right? One is the volatility that you spoke about and the drawdown. The drawdown has a huge impact on our sponsor. 
right? Sure. So it's a very it's a very tough balancing act between, you know, obviously we're here, you know, we're fiduciaries for our beneficiaries. We have to make up that funding ratio, but at the same time we have to be conscious of the impact it has on the balance sheet of our sponsor, and so which is another dimension that we have. And how do you reconcile that? Right. Well, you have a trade-off here because from the sponsor's point of view. They, don't, they want you to be able to not have any budget draw at all. So basically, in theory, they want you to take no risk and go away. You know? <laughs> but the problem is what you're doing is then you're giving up, the, you're getting current reward for sacrificing the future. You know? So it's like kicking the can down the road. Basically you say, we don't want to, don't bother us. You know, we don't want to fund anything now because of this problem. But the question is, if you take the view as the pension fund board and that saying, how can we extend the life of our portfolio and how we can reduce the requirement that we call on San Jose to fund more of this, then I think you have to take a longer run perspective and realize that risk management, dynamic risk management, will extend the life of your fund and think about it in that dimension and think about everything that will enable you to extend the life of the fund which might mean at the current time for the drawdown that if you save some of the downside, then the cost of having to liquidate some of the fund to meet current expenditures will be less than if you have the bad drawdown and you're in the, in the bottom of that trench <laughs> that I showed when basically you have to call your, you know, one, one of the things I had four, four uh, kids um, uh, responsible one time and you know, they used to call me occasionally, but if I got four calls on Sunday, wow, I was really <laughs> worried because that meant they were calling me for money, you know? And so I, I always like it now, my kids don't call me, I call them, you know? <laughs> basically, that means there's no problem. But I know I'm the risk manager, so basically you don't want to be called, you know? So you have to think about managing the money that way. How do you extend the life? How do you manage the bottom? Those trade-offs are crucial. You can't just take more risk. There's when to take risk is important. When the skewness is huge, that's when you want to take risk. You don't want to take risk all the time. You, know, you have to be dynamic. So that means you can't keep measuring yourself relative to a stupid benchmark, uh, which, I'm not a stupid benchmark, a benchmark that is only a relative to it, you know. And I'm not learning anything. I'm not getting anything out of the school. You got to think about compounding. And so basically, that's what I'm saying, is that you have to educate, keep educating, and talking about the dynamics of what you want to achieve. How can you manage a dynamic portfolio in an institutional setting? Obviously, even though the board has delegated a lot of responsibilities to the investment team and they trust us a lot, I still have to have a 70-30 orientation. And so within that 70-30 framework, how can I be dynamic? Well, the point is that if, if um, you can be dynamic in multiple ways, okay, depending on how you want to try to control your drawdown of the portfolio. The re you have 70% in equities and 30% in bonds. You're buying insurance on 30% right now. So if you think about what the risk premium in equities is being 5%, just an illustrate, that's 1.5% a year you're giving up in expected return to have the 30% in the bond portfolio, okay? Unless you can have superior alpha in the bond portfolios. But let me just assume it's just a 70-30 allocation is a benchmark allocation. So the question is, when should we be 30%? Should we be 30% all the time? Or if the market is telling us the risks are really down now for the market, maybe I should reduce my 70% to 60%, you know? Or maybe it's a case that uh, it's sunny outside and there's the market is telling me there's no risk 
of the road ahead. It's not, I don't carry the umbrella. I go to 80%. So by thinking about being, but if you go to 80% versus uh, 70%, then the board has to realize you're doing that and that if you're taking a 10% on an upside tracking error, you can end up taking the loss if there's an unexpected accident or the rain starts to come unexpectedly. So, but if the market is giving you the correct signals as to the risk of the road ahead, by being dynamic that way and not always measuring yourself relative to the benchmark, being patient over time and thinking about repeated games of taking the umbrella or not taking the umbrella, you know, then basically you'll have a much better experience. You can extend the life of the fund. So basically, it's what I say is the beauty of the option market is telling us about short-term risk. It's telling, it's giving us, and people are ignoring it. Why? Because they're stuck at a 70-30. They want to be measured relative to 70-30. And so they know they should be reducing their risk, but they're not. You know, they say, oh, it's not going to rain or whatever, you know. So I'm saying we have to think about life in the dynamic setting and a, and a sequence of short-term events that we have to, we can look at. And so if we can use this information of the risk of the road ahead, let's use it. We have to start using cross-sectional signals of risk and not spending so much time just on returns and what returns are going to be. Averages, we have to think about risk as well. So that can be done. Yeah. So... So 70-30 is the sort of the fixed benchmark. The 30 is not bonds, by the way. It's it's other low beta assets. Uh, oh, bonds are a small part of it. So there's what no you're saying is... The beta's out of it. Yeah. yeah. So what you're saying is hold the 70-30 but be dynamic using an options framework right. is what I understand. Right. But this or options framework has a yeah. fixed cost to it. Pardon me? The options framework, being dynamic using options has a fixed cost to it. Why? Uh, because you're paying some premiums. Right, the insurance no, I'm, not I'm not saying it's necessary to buy options. I'm not, you don't have to, you can, it's a good question. When I was saying options, okay, I was saying the option market gives us information as to what the risks are. That's the beauty of insurance. If you know the cost of insurance is going up, you don't have to buy the insurance. You can be dynamic and you can, don't have to have insurance all the time. You can be dynamic. You don't have to buy any options. You can just use the signals. You know, I don't have to be the one, use the cross-sectional signals about the risk of the road ahead. You don't have to be a wager. You don't have to tell them. You just use ways and not give any information. You know, basically, it's one of the, it's what market prices are giving you. If the insurance cost of protection on the downside is going up, maybe that's a signal to get, be, don't drive as quickly. Get off the road. You don't have to go and buy protection. You can make your own protection. You can be dynamic. And, and not if you buy protection all the time, why buy <coughs> protection all the time? You know, sometimes you can need more protection, sometimes you need less protection. So that's what the beauty is of a dynamic structure because you want to not only buy protection, you want to know when to drive more quickly again. You want to drive slowly when the road is full of traffic. You want to speed up when the road is clear, you know, and get, and because you want to have a compound experience that's going to be smoother over time, and that's important. Okay, I, I think that that answers my original question. I was trying to figure out how to add more convexity to the portfolio. I was assuming, based on the slides I saw so far, that you were going down the path of buying options. No. And, and now I'm getting a better sense. You're just saying use the market information, option market information, to be more dynamic. By, by being dynamic, you're adding uh, convexity to your portfolio naturally. 
that's, that's the, I think that's what you're saying. I get it now. Okay, that's right. right. And the you. important th thing, sir, is that what, what you can do is if everyone would use, I want everyone to use the signals in the option market and have a better experience. When we drive from San Jose to San Francisco, why are all the cars always staying on the highway, you know, and we don't have the diffusion we get over time? But it's because of these constraints. If you can think about how to reduce your constraints, you can add to your convexity, you can add to your returns, and that be more dynamic in how you manage the risk of the portfolio. But if, if, if the investment management team and the board always want to measure themselves relative to a benchmark uh, and all the short-term phenomena, then it's hard for convexity to come to floor. You need patience for convexity to really come. You know, it's, it's everything that's non-linearity and how you generate the non-linearity is really the crucial thing in investing. And, and what is the options market telling us now? Um, okay, let me go to the next. I'll just quickly go three slides. And this is questions that I had here. Uh, the option market, if you look at these questions about 2024, then we have to really ask the question about um, whether it's the case that uh, the uh, markets themselves are, are going to allow us to have uh, greater uh, growth in the markets, or is inflation, will it be sticky and we'll have greater growth? What's going to happen? And what about the inflation episode? And if you look at our short-term outlook, and what we have here, this is what we garner from the option markets. This is the signals the option market is saying today to answer your question. The gray box is like the 0.25 to 0.75 fractile. So you look at the previous three years, it, that would be in the gray box on the typically, okay? So this is like a, what's called a Z-score, how significantly different it is from the average. And what we see is from emerging markets and from the SOC 50, from the Nikkei 225, and even the S&P 500, it tends to be in the upper region. The red dot is where we are today. The blue dot is where we were a month ago. And so that graph that you have is how it fluctuated over the last month of time. And the gray box is how it's been fluctuating over the last three years, okay? So if you see us, what we're saying is if you look right now, it looks like the tail sharp ratio, which is the expected upside to downside, okay, is very good for stocks right now. So basically, if you're talking about the 70-30 strategy, I would be 75 or 80, you know, in terms of risk. Because it looks like the risks around the world are pretty buoyant. So it looks like what's happened, the Fed Reserve has had a free lunch. Because what's happened is the economy, consumption has come up, employment's been up, things have been good. And that the markets have been forecasting it as being quite buoyant. Our signals have been this way for about a year now. And basically, it's been saying that even though pundits are saying and macro forecasters are saying that the downside is greater, and we worry about that, the market prices of insurance are not saying that. People are the smart money of the road, risk of the road ahead seems to be pretty darn good. If you look at the next page, which is the outlook for the next three to six months, because I'm using three-month options or six-month options here, that we see is that indicate large inflation either. If you look at the signals here, it looks as though there's just more possibilities of interest rates coming down. And if you look at it, the curve here, the short end of the curve, the five-year versus the 10-year versus the 30-year, 
all tend to be the case that the upside potential of bonds is much greater at the short end than the middle end and the long end, which means that the curve tends to be somewhat downward sloping, which in indication people say, oh, that could be in uh, recession. People are saying, no, when you have this inversion of the curve, short end greater than the long end, it looks like it could have a recession component. But no, we're saying no, the opposite could also occur, that the economy could be buoyant, which it is, and that basically with the economy being buoyant and inflation coming down, that basically it could be the case that the interest rates would tend to fall as well at the short end. And that's what the signals tend to be indicating. So given the economy is very strong, it's our feeling that the Fed doesn't have to be as fast in reducing rates because there's not a recession. And so you'll keep the try to control inflation, try to make sure inflation is killed, not make the mistakes as, as we did in 1997, uh, 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 1980, when Volcker came in and Burns said, okay, inflation's been killed. They reduced rates dramatically, reduced the real rate dramatically, and basically inflation took off again. We could have a double dip in inflation. Uh, my view is, and our signal view is that basically it's going to be hard with all our policies to get inflation back so low. If we're going to have insourcing, we're going to have wars, we're going to have debt overhang, we're going to have aging population, we're going to have redistribution. All that is not costless, you know, to have. So basically we're going to have to pay for that. And basically that means inflation might not come back to zero again. We might be above two, but it's not going to... It could, or we could get resurgence in inflation. And right now, the signals are pretty, uh, in both the United States and Europe, you know, the, um, that things are, are pretty uh, under control. And if we look at the next slide, which is the real rates, okay, we know the three components that we look at are growth, which is the ec economics shown by the equity markets or the global equity markets, which are buoyant still, pretty buoyant, okay, in terms of growth prospects, pretty benign. The upside potential is much greater than downside. In terms of inflation, looks as though the markets are saying the rates are controlled and the inflation is controlled at the current moment and we're in the Goldilocks scenario. If you look at the real rate world, okay, which is oil, oil's real, uh, uh, silver, gold, other things, uh, uh, chips, etc., it tends there to say that the real economy, which is the real rate, is most likely to come down more so than go up because real assets are commodities and assets that depend on the real rate. If the real rate comes down, basically the assets go, these asset prices go up. And so what we'll see is like based on commodity options, precious metal do not really indicate large risk of real rate pressures. This is where we are for the next three to six months. I don't know what the signals are afterwards because the efficiency of the <coughs> option market signals are very good at the three-month range and not good if you go to a year or two years. Who knows what's forecasting two years out? But when you think about insurance prices, forecasting what risks are in the short term are very valuable. And other signals may be for longer-term risk. So our signals are saying at the current time, who things could change dramatically if you get new wars or new things that are going to occur, unanticipated things um, you know, that are going to occur. But right now, things are pretty benign. You know, the growth is still there. Inflation seems to be controlled and coming down. You know, it's, it's less than 2% now, if you think about it, and maybe it'll fall further. And also the real economy, the real rates seem to be under control. But that's what the signals are saying at the current moment. Uh, question? Yeah. Um, I just may want to better understand this. What, what is your definition of a tail 
sharp ratio. How, how do you measure that? How do you calculate that? Is right. it just the okay. skewness of the vol market and the, okay. the different you're markets right. you're looking so at? What, how we measure, I, I said it too quickly, when yeah, I, missed I it, have sorry. time constraints, um, is the following. Let's say you have the whole sequence of option prices from put option, pass on market, out of the money, deeper out of the money, far out of the money. We have a whole sequence of prices for that. And then we have call options, a sequence of prices on call options as well. So each of those insurance costs tell you what the out of the money put option is telling you what the cost the insurer that pays. <coughs> the act of money is to insure the middle. You know, and the out of the money in the call option is to insure the upside. So if you look at this, all these prices of options, you can say, you can take each price of an option then you can invert that and figure out what is the probability at that out of the money probability, what is the probability if you get more, less out of the money, et cetera, for the put option, all the way up to out of the money call option to in the money call option. So you can use all these to figure out what probabilities are. And when we use retail loss, we say let's compute the expected tail loss at the 10% of the worst case so there's what's called the C-bar, if you think about conditional var volatility of the 10% of the worst cases, and the C-bar is the 10% of the best cases. And we take the ratio of the 10% of the best cases to the 10% of the worst cases, because everything is tails that occur. You know, the middle is noisy, and the tails are really what we're worried about. The unanticipated rainstorm, you know, or the unanticipated beautiful sunshine that comes out. So what we do is compute the expected tail gain to expected tail loss as the 10% of the best cases as the market's forecasting to the 10% of the worst cases. Because what happens? We know at times of shock, everything becomes highly correlated. Everything becomes, everything moves together. You know, not, and that's the key. And the middle doesn't, of our lives, the middle of our experience doesn't have much effect really the tails that have the largest effect. So we try to measure the tails. And wh what's the market saying would be the worst case? What's the market say would be the best case? And currently the market's saying the best case to worst case is that we're gonna have a still an economy that's gonna be uh, all right and, and growing for the next three to six months, okay? Same thing is true about inflation. Inflation seems to be controlled and coming down. We had a Goldilocks scenario, which depends to be forecasting for the last year or so things are going to be benign. And yet, you know, when you look at pundits around the world, you know, they were saying, in their world, they're saying, no, we got to really worry about things blowing up. So all the macro forecasters I really love, because the markets, more macro forecasters, in the hour they come to talk to you, the first 50 minutes, they explain, or 55 minutes, they explain the path perfectly, okay? Because they show all the charts of how things are going, and they look at this, we show the path. But the problem is you can explain the path perfectly and then they frame you and say, oh, these are experts because they explain the path perfectly. And then they, in the last five minutes of the talk, they give their forecast for the future. But one of the beauties of using market prices is that I can go global. I can use the experts who are forecasting in the equity markets. I can use the experts who are forecasting in the fixed income market. I can use the experts who are doing their forecasting in emerging markets. I can use the experts who are doing their in gold or commodities or silver or, 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 or chips or that. 
I go cross-sectional. And even though someone might be an expert on a myopic peak of what's happening in the global market in the U.S., they know nothing of what's happening in gold or silver or uranium prices, you know. And they know nothing of what's happening in emerging markets. So I, it, but so if you take all the signals cross-sectionally from around the world, and we would look at 4,000 options each day of all options around the world, and that then we could look at how this all combines together to create a story about what emerging markets are doing, what equities are doing. So we have a global story. Maybe we're not as expert on one particular part, okay? But cross-sectionally, you know, the expertise is there. You can build a, a wonderful story about what the risks and the markets are globally and what they're telling us. So that's why we use, we use the tails because the tails are the most important for everything we do. Missing the upside is bad, you know. If people are, are willing to pay much more for liquidity, when is, it, when is the worm turning? They're going to continue to use, pay more for liquidity. You want to be cautious. And when the worm turns, you know, when it gets to be more buoyant, you want to then increase your risk at that time. So that's when you have your cushion. You want to know when to use it. And so that's when the signals are very important. That's why the tails are important. So if I could, uh, so if we look at the first chart, the equity markets. Yeah. And let's look at the S&P 500. And so this is the signal over three years. Yes. And uh, so over this period, it's always forecasted um, better upside than downside. Is that um, correct? Uh, in, in terms of the gray bars themselves, you mean? Or no, in terms of the, the, the green line, I guess, is kind of how it's trended over the last month. Yeah, the green line oh, is trending over the last month. So oh, the, the, blue, last month. the blue okay. one was one month ago. Okay. And the red is what it is today. Okay. The so box is the score over three years. Over three years, okay. Okay, so yeah. basically over the last month, yeah. and currently, it's more at the 0.75 fractile. So right, basically, okay. it's more of the upper experience. Okay. okay. It's, not a, it's not, if you look at the upside, the, the little bar at the top, yeah. that's the occurrence, that's at the 97 and a half percentile. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was curious to see so what the sig signal was in 2021, January 2021, for example. That's correct. In January 2021, um, it would be uh, that that would be uh, it would be in the upper region in okay. January 2021 as well, but the upper side. So it over the last year, I mean, it's fluctuated, okay, yeah. but it's been the equity mark. The signals have been pretty buoyant over the last year. Yeah, this is only over the last month. Uh, so 2022, I would uh, sorry, 20, I'm sorry, 2021, sorry. My mistake, okay, in 2020, um, I'd have to go back and do this, okay, 2020, it was the case that, um, you know, things were actually less buoyant, obviously, okay. and they became more buoyant going into, uh, in starting into 2023, okay, in 2022, they were less buoyant. Well, if there are no more questions, I want to thank Professor Schultz on behalf of the board. Uh, every time I speak to him, I just feel a little wiser and I learn something new. Uh, thanks, thank you for your time and your generosity. Um, well, my pleasure. I, I know your problem is not easy, but it has solutions. <laughs> the point is, it's not, you know, I'm not, I want to tell you, you go to the doctor, you say, well, you got six months to live. No, 
I'm telling you as a doctor, you can take medicine that I give you and that you'll be better off <laughs> by doing it. And uh, the board will know if, Pam, if you need to put up a little money in the short term, don't worry about it. You'll get convexity and basically you'll have, you'll have less that you'll have to worry about later. But see, you have a constraint too because you don't know how your life is on the board. So you don't want to be voted off, you see. So you don't want to have to raise money. So there, that's, that's the t patience is an interesting problem in all our lives, right? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Schultz. This is a very timely presentation, too, because, you know, we will usually talk about asset allocation at this, uh, around this time of the year. So it looks like the options market is saying maybe take a little bit more risk. Right. So we will have those interesting discussions internally. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Professor. I think you gave Thank our you. investment committee uh, a lot to think about. That reflects as we were here. Um, have no old business, so move on to new business. And it looks like the oral update by CEO Roberto. Are you online? Yes, yes I am. Thank you everyone, and happy new year to all. And uh, thank you to the board for allowing me to attend uh, this meeting remotely. Uh, just a couple of things. First, uh, the city COVID-19 mandatory vaccination policy was actually discontinued uh, effectively January 1st, 2024. Just wanted you all to know, I think the city is just kind of following at this point the county of Santa Clara uh, uh, policies on any COVID-19 related issues. Um, the January edition of the newsletter uh, will be mailed later this month, so be on the lookout for it. Uh, as you know, the kind of the year 2023 just ended, which means that we are preparing the retirees 1099R to file the taxes in the next couple of weeks. And uh, as always, we plan on mailing them later this month towards the end of the month. Um, the offices will be closed on Monday, uh, January 15, to observe uh, Martin Luther King Day. And GPP, which is the guarantee purchasing power at 75% purchasing power from the retirement date for 2023, uh, will be calculated and paid to those members that are entitled to it in their paychecks of February. And lastly, I wanted uh, to update the board on my attendance to the city council uh, last December 12 on the policies and procedures uh, a project that uh, the boards embark along with uh, Reed Smith, Cortex, and our staff. I think all things considered, the, the meeting went uh, relatively well. I, I think the, uh, we prepared a status memo for the city council. The memo, uh, in a nutshell, indicated those sections uh, of the mini code that the board uh, accepted and approved, and also listed the number of items that are left to be considered and reviewed for further consideration by your board. Uh, I'm sure Councilmember Foley, again, Happy New Year, Councilmember Foley, will have comments to update you on that issue as well, but I wanted to share uh, the council was a big concern about the uh, long list of uh, items that were still left to be reviewed by the boards. Uh, they were also concerned uh, about whether the fact that those items are left to be reviewed 
whether that meant that we were considering either relaxing or limiting any kind of controls. Uh, I made the point that, that that was not the case, that in fact, I wouldn't even surprise me and in some cases, some of those procedures will be actually controls will be more stringent. I, I made it very clear that the goal here uh, for the boards was to make sure that the main objective was to allow for more effective and efficient operations of the Office of Retirement Services. And I think lastly, council was also concerned about uh, the timing of how long it may take uh, for us to conduct this review. Uh, obviously, um, I, I didn't commit to any particular day, but I did express my sentiment that I thought it was, we would likely come back to the city council with a final determination and uh, discussion with the city council sometime in the second quarter of 2024, which is between April and June. I think city council was, again, also a big concern about that timeline. They would prefer that it will be sooner. And I made the point that we will certainly try to come back before then as soon as possible. Uh, but all in all, they accepted the, uh, the, the report. And again, we made the point that we are working diligently and we'll come back to city council as quickly as we complete the process, which I explained to some extent, right? Which means that we have to come back to both uh, uh, governance committees about boards, and then after that, they, any recommendations have to go back to their respective boards for review and approval, uh, which is just was my way of explaining uh, the impact on the timeline and why it may take a little longer than we anticipated. With that, Mr. Chair concludes my comments. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you, Roberto. Any questions? Any questions? Trust, trust. With that, we will move on for our oral, oral update from Councilwoman Pam Foley. Great, thank you very much, and Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you had a restful time and peaceful time off. Uh, I know it was good for all of us to rejuvenate a little bit, and that's a good time to hit the ground running then, as of yesterday. Uh, not to belabor the report that Roberto gave, but I'll just follow up that the council was very concerned about the timeline and the reporting back to the council. And uh, while uh, it's understandable, the discussion needs to be held at both boards and then uh, come back to a consensus with both boards. The, uh, the, I would encourage this board and both boards actually, and Roberto, to come back to council sooner than later. And uh, as I recall the meeting, um, unfortunately, I was I was sick, so I was participating virtually, which is hard in a council meeting to participate to participate virtually. But as I recall, the commitment was made to come back in that second quarter and not later than that. So that's really important that we hear that and that we that commitment is held as tightly as possible because in the the council had a lot of issues. Number one is HR and how is it related to the employees who are our employees. Um, they're, they're employed by City of San Jose. So, but there are a lot of other issues. The hit list was huge and I know you're working through it and, and uh, I know it takes time to address some of the concerns of council, but timing is really important and we need to really put it to rest before the end of really the fiscal year, which is June. 
and and with that I'm I'm concluded and one comment I see on our retirement list we have some interesting people who have hit that list from the fire the police side of things and yes. we'll discuss that when we get to it but thank you <laughs> absolutely and uh, just a comment uh, as my interim spot I don't I think everybody uh, the trustees included would agree that it's in everybody's interest to move as fast as we can on these policies so I don't think anybody's purposely dragging their feet no, I and, and uh, thank you, I really appreciate that. I actually asked the question as to why it would take so long and Roberto's explanation made perfect sense to me that it has to go to, you know, Federated doesn't meet on the same days, made a good argument to keep the board, to combine the boards, but I understand that's a whole other issue that we're not talking about. But I completely understand and understand why it will take long and. And thank you for your uh, acknowledgement that really time is of the essence. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we'll move on to 4C, discussion and action to approve MGO's agreed upon procedures report evaluating the inclusion of invoice management fees and plans investment performance uh, from 15 to 23. Uh, do we have the letter up, Maytech? Is this something that you were gonna address? No, this is actually something for Benji and MGO to address. Are we regarding the agreed upon procedures report? Um, is uh, Craig online? I'm here at first. Oh, there you are. Thank you. They agree upon procedures uh, work related to this this particular job. So I'll turn over to him to uh, provide a summary of the report. And of course, I'm in attendance. Uh, so is Jay from the investment section, and Benji as accounting manager uh, is on attendance remotely as well. So Craig, a happy new year and welcome to the meeting. Thank you. All right, All right. thank, thank you, Roberto. Happy, happy new year as well, and uh, members of the or trustees of the police and fire uh, board as well. Um, as Roberto said, my name is Craig Harner. I'm a partner with MGO. I oversee the audit at our services of the financial statement audit. And uh, during the course of that um, management, Roberto and Benji actually um, engaged us to perform what we call an agreed upon procedures engagement. So uh, agreed upon procedures, it's, it's not an audit. We don't provide any assurance or any opinion on anything. What we do, though, is um, assist management to evaluate some sort of subject matter, in this case being um, the, what would the um, investment performance fees had been had they uh, included these missing um, investment management fees from certain investment managers. Uh, so what we did is uh, we obtained um, for the period June 30th through uh, 2015 through June 30, 2023, we uh, performed procedures that were agreed upon by management uh, and recalculated the, uh, the performance fees for both the, uh, the pension plan and the healthcare trust of the police and fire department uh, plan, and we uh, so we took the took we obtained the um, from the general ledger a transaction detail of all those missing management fees, um, summarized them in, for the different years, calculated what that um, percent of the total market value of the fund was at June 30th for each of the years in question, and then re performed or recalculated uh, that percentage effect on the uh, on the investment management fees. And our results are summarized in the four procedures that we did in the, um, or sorry, the six procedures that we did 
in the um, agreed upon procedures report um, in front of you, we recalculated returns for um, both the one year, three year, and five year. And we um, found that the um, th there were differences between when we included the investment management fees between two and 12, 13 basis points was the, was the effect on the stated, stated returns. And so with that, I'll um, be happy to answer any questions. So just to be clear, so uh, the performance is different, but the NAV is not affected, right? The fund NAV is as we've seen before. Excuse me? The fund NAVs are? The, as the assets. The assets, yes. Yes, I mean, is that correct, Jay? I mean, yeah. NAVs are not affected, right? No, the NAVs aren't affected, just the returns. Any questions from any other trustees or council? Okay, I believe we'll entertain a motion to receive and accept uh, MGO's proposal. Uh, motion by Santos. Second. Second by Eshwar. All those in favor? Aye. 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 So moved. And with that, thank you. And we move on to 4D. Discussion and action on the approval of the Police and Fire Department's retirement Act for for fiscal year 22-23. So for this one, if I if I may, Mr. Jacks. Please. So the act for it was previously presented to the board at our November and December meetings, but had not incorporated MGO's work on the separate accounts, uh, recording of the fees that we just heard from Mr. Craig Harner, and which we have just approved. And so the version that of the ACFR that is included with the agenda materials does include that information regarding the separate account reporting of those fees and accurately states the fund's performances. And so in this act for you will find the um, MGO's letter regarding the agreed upon procedures that he had just presented and that the board has just approved, as well as a footnote, a disclosure that explains that ORS incorporated MGO's agreed upon procedures work with regard to recording the separate account fees in its total investment return percentages as stated throughout the act for. Thank you for that explanation. Are there any questions in regard to the uh, revised ACFR with the amendments added? With that, I will accept a motion to receive and accept the revised. So move Santos, second by Eshwar. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. All right, I think that takes care of it. Thank you, Craig, I appreciate right. it. Yep, thank you. And now we move on to 4E, discussion and action to amend the Disability Committee Charter. So I'm back with the uh, revised changes to the Disability Committee Charters at the direction of the board at our last board meeting. We, uh, was, I was request, it was requested that we would uh, change the charter to allow for any combination of members for the, uh, to chair the committee charter, I'm sorry, to any combination of members to form a quorum to hold a meeting for the Disability Committee due to um, complications and difficulties in getting quorums to hold those meetings. Now the board, has also discussed the current backlog that we have in disability applications, and therefore um, the board took the decision to change that requirement, which before required one public member and one um, member of uh, the plan to form the quorum and, and take action. And so that we have now removed that uh, requirement from the charter. If you can look at the red lines, it, it reflects those changes. Thank you. Uh, any questions on the proposed changes? No, I'm going to say thanks. Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, Dick. 
Uh, I will entertain a motion to approve the changes. For, so moved it. Second? Second. Second Ashwar. Seems to be a theme. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All right, now we get to see how well I pronounce names. We'll move on to retirement. The uh, following service retirements are up for approval. Stephen Bevington, Fire Captain, Fire Department, effective January 6, 2024, 26.03 years of service. Herb Campbell, Fire Engineer, Fire Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 23.07 years of service. John B. Carr, Jr., Police Lieutenant, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 27.3 years of, 38 years of service. Jesus Corona, Fire Captain, Fire Department, effective January 26, 2024, 28.62 years of service. Kenneth Folsom, Fire Captain, Fire Department, effective January 18th, 2024, 25.08 years of service. Eugene Ito, Police Sergeant, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 26.88 years of service. Steve Jeffrey, Police Sergeant, Police Department, effective January 12th, 2024, 25.21 years of service. Fernando Jimenez, Firefighter, Fire Department, effective January 7th, 2024, 25.08 years of service. Jerry Kepler, otherwise known as Betty. Police Officer, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 26.33 years of service. Brian Matchett. Police Captain, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 27.84 years of service. Keith Mitsuhara, Police Sergeant, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 28.42 years of service with reciprocity. Duke No, Police Officer, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 26.88 years of service. Stephen Nguyen, Fire Engineer, Fire Department, effective January 18th, 2024, 23.61 years of service. Jason Pierce, Police Lieutenant, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 27.37 years of service. Sean Pritchard, Police Sergeant, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 27.8 years of service. Wade Sandal, Police Officer, Police Department, effective January 6th, 2024, 28.93 years of service with reciprocity. Chris Siva, Police Sergeant, Police Department, effective January 6, 2024, 27.34 years of service. Bill Solma, Police Officer, Police Department, effective January 21st, 2024, 28.18 years of service with reciprocity. Vin Trin, Police Officer, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 27.84 years of service. And Tommy Troy, Deputy Chief of Police, Police Department, effective January 20th, 2024, 25.01 years of service. That was a long list. Motion, uh, to, motion to approve Santos. Second, Eshwar. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, any comments on these recent retirements? Uh, for the police side, I will echo those sentiments. Um, a lot of these are my longtime friends. Um, Sean Pritchard was the police union uh, president for many years and uh, worked with him uh, hand in hand over at the POA. 
Um, a lot of these were my academy mates and some uh, very close friends, so I wish them the best in retirement. Councilwoman Foley. If I may, uh, I, I really hate coming to January in this meeting and seeing so many good people who are retiring from the police and fire department. We so desperately need their service, but I certainly appreciate all the time that they have given to us in uh, the service that they offer to us. And I served uh, directly, actually, with Captain Matchett. He was one of the first captains that I worked with as a, trust, as a council member. Um, so I'll, I will miss him as well. And I hope that we're able to hire and recruit and fill these slots as quickly as possible. But I truly appreciate all the years of service that these gentlemen have given to us. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, with that, we'll move on to death and survivorship notifications. Notification of the death of Thomas Hooks, fire captain, retired May 1st, 1991, died November 19th, 2023. No, no survivorship benefits. Notification of the death of Willard Martin, police officer, retired February 3rd, 1999, died October 23rd, 2023. Survivorship benefits to Dora Martin, spouse. Notification of death of Leslie P. Olmans, fire captain, Retired January 3rd, 2003. Died November 16th, 2023. No survivorship benefits. We'll take a moment of silence. Thank you, and if anybody would like to comment. Uh, for the police side, um, I'll echo uh, Trustee Santos. Uh, thank you for your service. Uh, looks like everybody enjoyed a decent amount of retirement uh, for the service that they paid for the city. Um, I appreciate that. And um, thoughts and prayers to their friends and family as they move forward. Uh, with that, we'll go into committee minutes, uh, investment committee. So investment committee, we did have a meeting uh, last month. Uh, we had a review of private markets uh, for Dinesh. Um, we reviewed trading costs and We'll receive and file those minutes. All right, I think I'm the only one here from the audit committee. So um, we haven't, we, our last meeting was October 19th. I believe we've already discussed that. Um, so uh, nothing since that time. And our next meeting looks like it's gonna be February 15th, which is good to know, because I didn't know that. Uh, governance committee, I believe that's just you. I'm on here, it speaks for itself, it's the on the 29th. All right, uh, back to you, Dick, for the disability committee. Oh, if, if, if I oh, may, sorry. sorry, for the Governance Committee, I did want to note that the Governance Committee will be taking up the contracting and procurement policy issues at that meeting, and it will be a joint meeting with the Federated Board. Thank you for that. The Disability Committee, thank you for the measure today that gives us the opportunity to continue, and uh, we'll be meeting on January the 8th, of course, at 10 o'clock at the retirement uh, building, and uh, thanks to Dave for uh, chiming in and doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you, I'll see you on Monday. Uh, Joint Personnel Committee, Eshwar. Right, so we did have a meeting, um, two issues. One, we talked about resolving the differences in the goals so we continue to make progress in that. Uh, it's actually the part of the CEO, uh, Andrew, uh, right here. Yeah, uh, we had a 
uh, once we have that uh, finalized, we will reconvene sometime probably in January uh, with JPC meeting to um, kick everything off the process. Okay, and that next meeting is, uh, looks it'll, like Tuesday? Uh, it's not scheduled yet, but it'll probably be sometime in January. Okay. <clears throat> and it uh, looks like we'll receive and file those minutes. With that, if anybody doesn't have anything, any public comment? I think, Harvey, this is your last meeting, correct? This is my last meeting. I think that needs to be acknowledged in and of itself. And I, I just wanted to say how much I've been honored in the last dozen years to work with this group and, and be part of the dedication that you have to the membership. The professionalism of this board is uh, remarkable and is superior to so many other boards around the state. And, and one of the things that's characterized this board in my experience is that through difficult times as well as good times, the level of respect and courtesy that you've shown to each other is quite remarkable. And that's allowed you, in my view, to accomplish things that other boards struggle with. You've, you've always managed to think highly of each other and to participate together as a collective team, and I hope I've been able to help promote that with you. So I think you're in great hands going forward. I've assured Maytag that I will uh, not disappear uh, to some island in Greece, although that sounds pretty good <laughs> sounds after really the weather nice. we've had this time. But anyway, just wanted to thank all of you for your courtesies and friendship, and uh, I will be available to Maytag as a resource and I wish you all the best going forward. So thank, thank you very much for the thank opportunity. You. I, I'm only senior to David on the board, so we're, we're both very junior, but uh, I would like to thank you for your guidance and leadership in the short time I've been here. Um, it has helped me a lot and helped uh, my learning curve moving forward. And I would like to invite the other trustees and Roberto to chime in uh, as, we, as we wish Harvey a farewell and to great retirement. Yeah, Mr. Chair. Yeah, I was here when we made the change to Harvey's uh, company and so on, and I really appreciate uh, uh, allowed me the phone calls I had to make after hours, things that was on my mind that we wanted clarification. That means a lot, and your advice always was good, the education, and especially when it comes to those big legal issues and challenges that we had here in the last couple of years. They were really big, and it would cost some of our retirees and present-day members a lot of money and different things that. We, but we needed that leadership at the time that came through, so thank you. And I look forward to uh, seeing you again. You betcha. Thank you again. So I, I've been here five years, and uh, you know, I, I know uh, whenever there's anything challenging, you know, pick up the phone, talk to Harvey, and uh, you know, um, he's just been great in terms of advice, suggestions. Um, and it's not just on the legal things, you know, even in terms of investments and stuff, I think you ask the right questions, and allow us to focus on the right issues uh, in terms of our fiduciary responsibility. So thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I don't want to repeat you know, what everybody else is saying, but I mean, your, your, your leadership, your counsel, um, the mentorship has been invaluable to this board. Um, we've gone through some difficult you know, situations where you know, we had to overcome with memberships and and you've always been right there just leading us and providing the right guidance. And you're gonna be sorely missed. 
um, and I, I appreciate you know everything you've done and enjoy your enjoy your retirement. Thank you. Yeah, uh, ditto for me as well. Um, thanks for all your help and service. Uh, only other thing I'd like to add is uh, there's actually a lot of life after retirement. So <laughs> <laughs> hope you're looking forward to it and uh, carving out your time to all your hobbies and activities going forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm banking on the risk management uh, conversation we had in retirement. That's oh, you know, try to avoid, that could be very avoid helpful. downside <laughs> risk. <laughs> that could be very helpful. Smooth and boring ride. Councilwoman Foley. It's been uh, a real honor and pleasure to serve with you in the last five years that I've been here. Uh, and I appreciate that you're always uh, looking out for the you're the fiduciary responsibility of the retirement boards, but you truly keep the sponsor in perspective too and remind us of who the sponsor is and why that relationship is really important. I appreciate, uh, while you're not offering me counsel, we do have conversations on occasion, and I truly appreciate that. And uh, ditto for retirement. My husband retired last year, and he's excited about it, and I wish you the best. And Maybe you'll end up in that Greek island. That would be great. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Mr. Chair. Uh, yes, go ahead, Roberto. Can say a few words. Um, I, Harvey, I apologize. He's out of order. I'm not there this morning to uh, say goodbye to you. Uh, it's been more than 21 years that um, one way or another we have worked together with uh, different boards. And in fact, I don't think many of you know that uh, one of the main reasons I joined San Jose was because uh, Harvey actually uh, reached out to me and told me this job was uh, open. And if I was interested in applying for it, which obviously I did, I ended up being selected. I'm very thankful for that. So it's been a real pleasure, uh, Harvey. Uh, it's been really not just a pleasure, but an honor working with you and the boards and the members over the last 21 years in my different jobs. And um, I just want to tell you thank you and wish you nothing but the best and a very, very, very healthy, long and happy retirement and I hope you know, I know you do, these are public meetings. You always welcome to attend, whether it's remotely or in person. So thank you very much. Thank you, Roberto. Back at you. Anybody else like to add anything to Harvey's accolades over the years? <laughs> I would like to say something This briefly. is being recorded, isn't it? it yes, is. absolutely. You know, Harvey, if you've left the board. My wife won't, <laughs> she won't believe it if I just tell her about it. Well, Wendy, if you're out there, um, I'm just kidding, uh, but in all seriousness, you really have helped bring this board together in a very collegial manner. Everyone, I would credit a lot of the culture that this board has to your great leadership, and um, and I would really uh, look forward to working with you um, when you're behind the scenes, and we can we can have phone calls together, and we will be gone. Thank you. Right. Uh, Mr. Chair, um, not related to Harvey, I think, you know, we, we already said goodbye to Harvey, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I missed it. I'm trying to keep track of the meeting. Uh, but regarding the JPC, uh, there were a couple of items, and I apologize. If you board did um, approve, then I apologize. 
but if you didn't, I wanted to call attention to item seven points five C and D. Yeah, yeah, uh, that as there well. is a discussion and action on that. Correct. I was gonna, yeah. I was gonna address that, that as well. That was a meeting with Barbara. I was keeping track, so thank you, Barbara, for doing so. So I'll turn it over to whether it's Andrew or yourself as a chair. Uh, Trustee Wilson, or even Council uh, uh, Maytag, uh, whoever is going to lead that discussion is fine. Sure, so, so for, for items uh, 75C, that item was deferred at the JPC for further revisions to uh, the proposed tiebreaker issues on um, that we were discussing. And so that will be coming back to the JPC at, the, at their next meeting. Okay. And then as for the um, 7.5D, the executive search, the uh, JPC charter actually allows the JPC themselves to engage the executive search firm without further board approval, so there's no action needed to be taken on that item. Okay, thank you, Council. Uh, Roberto, is that satisfied? Uh, yes, I am, as soon as you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to adjourn without approval, you, you know. <laughs> no, 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 I think Maytag uh, provided a good, uh, a good summary. Thank you, Maytag. I do want to point out we started a half hour later than normal and we're getting out before lunch. My one and only time is chair. You're welcome. Our meeting is adjourned. Thank you, David. Thanks, yeah. Recording stopped.